to the Gibson Girl Review, the book review podcast that rescues antique novels from the doom of mere decor and puts them back where they rightfully belong, in your to-be-read pile. Join us every week as we rediscover forgotten stories from the Gilded Age and Progressive Era and uncover just how entertaining and relevant they still are more than a century later. to all our fellow old book lovers here in the good old U.S. of A. I am Amy Drown. And I am Jacinta Meredith. And we are super excited to be back for an all-new season of The Gibson Girl Review. This time last year, this entire podcast was a total pipe dream of mine. <laughs> and now here we are kicking off our second season. Yeah. And actually, this new season is going to be bigger and better than ever. Yeah. Literally, because as we mentioned at the end of last season, we are, first of all, going to be a weekly show Yay. starting this season, which means this whole new second season will be twice as long as season wow. one. Plus, we're going to have a bunch of new features that we're adding, including interactive episodes yes. in which you, our listeners, will get to help us choose which books to feature on the show. And we really do need your help because we have too many books to choose <laughs> So from. many. We also have a new co-host who will be joining us later this season. Yay. We're going to do our first theme-oriented month in October, sharing some spooky and mystery books, <laughs> including a really famous story that I have been dying to read for years, and I cannot wait to get to that episode. It's going to be <laughs> so much fun. So yes, we have that coming up. Plus, we even have... Some bonus content and bonus episodes that will be available exclusively to our website subscribers. Yep. So as we're kicking off a whole new season of the show, let's take a minute yes. to refresh everyone's memory as to why we're here and what the Gibson Girl Review is all about. Absolutely. Well, first of all, you can, of course, always scroll back on your podcast listening service to listen to our season one episodes. Mm -hmm. And those very early episodes, we do explain why we started the show, why I named it the Gibson Girl Review, all that fun stuff. Plus, eight of our 10 season one episodes feature a short history segment in which we share some very brief details about the life and career of Charles Dana Gibson, yes. the artist who created the iconic Gibson girl that is the namesake of our show and our little icon as well. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with Gibson or the Gibson Girl, we really do recommend you check out those episodes mm -hmm. because knowing even a little bit about Gibson's career and what his illustrations represent can really help modern readers understand the books that we review. Yes, exactly. And those books that we do review on the show are from the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, which mm -hmm. we set as being between 1870, which is the end of Reconstruction, roughly, yep. to 1920, which is post-World War I and the passing of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. So that's our 50-year time frame for books to review on the show. And we still have too many. <laughs> yes. And even narrowing it down <laughs> that much, we still have thousands to choose from. And we do mostly review forgotten books from this era because there are already a lot of shows and websites and blogs out there who are talking about the famous or classic books from that time period. Yep. Which we love. Absolutely. We're not saying don't read those, but our belief here on the Gibson Girl Review is that all old books still deserve to be read and still have something to offer. And we 
are going to challenge that right off the bat here in season two with the book that we're sharing with you today. Well, we have to be honest. We do. We do. But really, an old book does not have to be great or famous to still be worth reading. Exactly. And our goal is to prove that in every single episode that we do. So most of the books you hear us sharing with you on this podcast are books that you've probably never heard of before. I mean, most of them we've never heard of before either. Exactly. Or, you know, if it is a, quote, famous book, and yes, I'm using the air quotes that no one can see, (laughs) it's because there's stories that have become so mainstream Mm -hmm. through movies or stage adaptations that the original source book is what's become forgotten. People are more familiar with the adaptations. Yeah. And we definitely had a couple books like that last season yeah. with Ben-Hur and Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Absolutely. And we have a couple more coming up in season two. Yes, we do, including our grand finale episode, which <laughs> I'm so excited. It's going to be awesome. If you want to know what books are coming up in advance, that is another great reason to subscribe to our website because subscribers will receive advance notice of which books are coming up on future And you episodes. know you want that. The only way to find out is to join our website. Yeah. So. We're still going to stick with our every other week format in terms of sharing reviews of these forgotten books from the Gilded Age or Progressive Era (laughs) that we believe still deserve to be read and enjoyed. Absolutely. You know, we'll tell you what we thought about it. We'll talk about the themes that modern readers can connect to. And we'll even do a short reading from each book. That's one of our hallmarks in order to give you a sample of what the book is like. And I'm especially excited about our readings this season because we have a whole group of professional voice actors and audiobook narrators who will be doing them for us. Yes! That's one of the biggest additions to the podcast this season is more voices. Literally, we have readers from all over the world. That's so cool. Who are sharing their talents with us this season, and you all are going to love it. Yeah. We will have more information about them on our website. So again, you'll want to go to GibsonGirlReview.com and check out out all the highlights. Yep, absolutely. And the website is also where you'll be able to listen to our exclusive bonus content this season, including the all new The Spoiler Room. <laughs> yes, it's totally cutesy. I know. That's but awesome. <laughs> these are going to be some short mini episodes in which we go a little deeper into some of the books that we review in order to discuss spoilers that we don't want to share on the full episode and ruin the book for everybody, right? Yep. Because we do try to avoid spoilers in our reviews, but some books have endings and surprises that are just too juicy for us to not discuss. Exactly. Some of them you just, we have to talk about it! (laughs) Yes, exactly. So when we do have a spoiler session available, we'll announce it in the full episode and then tell you where and how to listen to it. Yes. And also, as part of our new weekly format, in between these full-length review episodes, We're also adding a new episode format called the First Five Pages Challenge. Yeah. In which you, our listeners, will get to vote on whether we should keep reading and do a full episode on that book. And we really need you to vote because we can't keep deciding. There's just too many good books. Yes. So we'll explain more about that next week in our first first five pages episode. But for now, that's all the business. That's all you need to know. You're all caught up. (laughs) So let's dive into our very first book review of season two.
excited to discuss this, partially because it is immediately challenging <laughs> our primary goal yes. to encourage you to read all books. <laughs> so our first book of season two is America's Daughter by Rena I. Halsey, first published in 1918. Now, that title alone makes it pretty obvious why we chose this book for this episode. Mm, you think? <laughs> Just a little bit. Exactly. As soon as we realized that our new season would begin on the 4th of July, this book immediately came to mind. And this was one from your own personal collection, right? Yes. This is actually a classic example of why I started the podcast, because this is a book that I bought at an antique store years ago just because I loved the pretty cover. I mean, that's how I choose mine. Always, right? <laughs> yes. And you can see pictures of this book on our social media posts for today's episode. But it was also one that, after I bought it, sat on my shelves and I never read it. <laughs> and as we talked about in those early episodes last season, that was one of the original motivations to start the podcast, to read my way through my own library. That's one of the reasons I fell in love with the podcast immediately, because I needed an excuse to read through my own collection. Yes, exactly. And the sad thing is, a lot of people today collect antique books because they're just pretty to look at and they sit on a shelf as decor. Mm -hmm. We believe that they are so much more than that. We're here to go beyond the cover, to open them up and find out what's inside. They want some love too. So what is America's Daughter about? America's Daughter is what we would consider today to be a young adult novel. It is the story of a group of schoolgirls from Brooklyn who decide to form a club called the Daughters of America, and their goal is to become better Americans. They decide that the way to do this is to study American history in order to understand the principles upon which the country was founded. And again, think about when this book was published in 1918. This is at the height of the Great War. Mm -hmm. And so this is their patriotic duty to contribute to the war effort since they can't go fight themselves. Mm -hmm. So during their summer vacation, they take a trip with their teacher to visit several famous historical sites around New England. And in typical young adult fashion, there's kind of some drama and mystery and romance woven in. <laughs> And the main character of the book is a girl who was adopted as an infant and therefore doesn't really know her own heritage. She doesn't know if she's actually American. So this trip she's kind of using as a secret way to try to find her parents. There's also another girl who is a war refugee who needs the club's help to try to reunite with her mother. That was a pretty cool aspect of the book. Yeah. I really liked how they wove that in. So I don't know about you, but I had absolutely no idea what to expect going into this book, <laughs> which honestly makes it more fun in most cases. But for this particular one, I would not have minded hearing that summary before I read it. Yeah, I completely <laughs> agree. This is one of those books that you do need a little background information before you start page one, for sure. Yeah. So with that in mind, what was your initial reaction to it? Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't lie. My initial reaction to this story was not a good one. <laughs> I mean, I had looked it up on Goodreads, so I knew the premise and I was down with that. I'm like, okay, this sounds interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But once I started reading, I found this book to be odd. <laughs> yes. It was like Nathaniel Hawthorne meets <laughs> 90210 or something. It was oh definitely a lot of teenage angst and hijinks. It would be a TV show on the CW. <laughs> you know, it struck me as that kind of thing. But it was also mixed in with a lot of 
pretty heavy-handed didacticism, uh-huh. especially with all of those long history recitations and lectures. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, my first thought <laughs> after I finished reading this book was, hmm, maybe we need to pick something else to start season two. <laughs> but I decided to wait and let the story marinate in my head for a while and just think about it for a bit to see if my reaction might change. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I didn't let it marinate in my head once I was done. <laughs> I was just done. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't bad. It was just kind of boring. Yeah. And I really kept waiting for the story to start. Mm, yeah. Like, it took me a while to figure out where they were going to go with the storyline and to realize that those historical recitations were going to be prevalent. Yes. And they went off into so many long mm-hmm. history lessons, basically, yes. that I half wondered. If it was, like, written to be a history lesson. I think it kind of was. That's kind of how it came across to me. (laughs) It reminded me a little bit of Swiss Family Robinson, actually, which I do enjoy that book. Yeah. But it was technically written to teach the author's sons lessons in morality. And I was like, well, maybe that was her goal in this one. Yeah, I do agree with you there. This is definitely a kind of history lesson thinly veiled as fiction as opposed to a truly engaging story that keeps you turning the pages kind of thing. Right. So, yeah, great start to season two. <laughs> a book we didn't really like. Okay, but, you know, that actually kind of presses our bottom line a little better, I think, because we aren't skipping over the book just because it didn't fit in with what we were hoping. Yes. We're still talking about it and what value it may or may not bring. Yes, exactly. Which is the point. That's why we're here. Yep, but maybe something was lost over the hundred years since it was first published. So how was it received back in 1918? For the most part, from what I could find, this book was pretty well received when it first was published in August of 1918. Okay. There were some critics who called it too sentimental and poorly executed. Okay. And I would definitely agree with the poorly executed part. Yes. (laughs) This is not the best written book we've seen on this show. Yeah. But most of the reviews used words like wholesome, joyful, dashing, inspiring, and of course, timely and patriotic. Well, that's true. And there was at least one review that suggested that readers should follow the example of these characters and form their own Daughters of America clubs and make these same kind of pilgrimage trips to visit historical sites and learn American history like the girls in this story do. I mean, that's not a bad idea. It really isn't. Like, if I was homeschooling kids, I would totally do that. Absolutely. It's a great idea. And honestly, I did appreciate the patriotism shown Mm -hmm. in the book. I feel like that's something sorely lacking in today's Mm -hmm. world. So it's kind of nice to see that even back in 1918, people were trying to come up with ways to increase patriotic fervor. Yes. And I'm definitely in favor of history-related trips like this. You know, it's actually kind of how I plan my vacations anyway, right? Where can I go and see something cool (laughs) and old? But the purpose of the club that these girls form in this book is to become better Americans, Mm -hmm. which of course means that they first have to decide what does it mean to even be American in the first place, mm-hmm. and then decide what it means to improve themselves in being <laughs> whatever that is, right? Yeah. And that's ultimately why we chose the quote that we did for today's episode title, which is, living the principles they gave to us. Because in the end, the basic purpose of this Daughters of America Club comes down to discovering and living out the principles of liberty that their forefathers and foremothers, mm-hmm. which was an interesting angle, I thought, passed down to them. Yeah, I really appreciated that. And of course, 
these principles get tested throughout the story, even from the very outset when they decide to form this club and they're having this opening scene deciding who should be allowed in. Yeah. They immediately start asking some questions that I think even today still make you think, which is part of the reason we're still talking about this book on the podcast today, because it may not be a great story, but it is great food for thought. Yeah. And the quote honestly does perfectly encompass the book. Learning from the values taught from American founders was the one theme that they consistently went back to. Yeah, there's a lot of rabbit trails in the story, but they do always come back to that for sure. Yeah. And like I said, I really did appreciate that the characters themselves asked a lot of questions. Yeah. And at the very beginning, it honestly made me a little defensive. Okay. Like, where are they going to go with this? I kind of had the same reaction. How is this author going to define what it means to be American? Yes. Am I going to agree with her? I was instantly ready to be like, you are wrong, no matter what it was. Yeah. My guard was up <laughs> yes. right away. Absolutely. Which goes to show it's actually a very fascinating series of questions. It is. And it's definitely relevant to today. Yeah. I mean, these are questions we are still asking. Right. But their answer to these questions, (laughs) or at least the method that they chose to find answers to these questions, was actually the biggest surprise of the book for me because this trip that they take is to actually study Pilgrim and Puritan history. Right? Who saw that coming? I know! We today think of American forefathers as being from the Revolutionary War era. exactly. The late 1700s, the early 1800s. But this story goes back a whole century further to the 1600s. I know. I was not expecting that. Yeah, at first when they did that, I was like, wait, why are they going back there? Shouldn't they be talking about revolution? No. Nope. They don't. They went straight to the foundations. Yes, it was really, really unexpected. I was also surprised by the number of boys and men who play a part in this story. Okay, I have to admit, I was one of those nerdy kids. I never actually read young adult novels when I was a young adult. So I'm not as familiar with the expectations of the young adult genre, even though it didn't technically exist as we know it back in 1918. Yeah. But it did strike me like this was supposed to be a story for girls. So I'm kind of bummed that Halsey would stoop to adding boys to the story, especially in some of these escapades where the boys are rescuing the girls from these catastrophes. You know, it kind of felt like a cop-out. Maybe that's a boy-crazy age and they would expect to have a little romance for their characters. Well, I mean, I don't know. I was actually delighted when she added boys to the story (laughs) because it instantly became more interesting. (laughs) I mean, yes, before I will that, agree. it was just a group of schoolgirls trooping around Boston reciting historical facts to each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when the boys came to the story, it added that actual fiction element yeah. that I find necessary to get through my history lessons. Yes, I agree. It does make for a better story once they start interacting with <laughs> the Boy Scouts and the West Point cadets, for sure. Okay, but when I first started the story, just by the way they were talking, I kind of thought the girls were like nine years old. (laughs) So when they started crushing on these boys, I was like, wait a second, I need to rethink my whole approach right now. Okay, I kind of thought the same thing too. Like, it was a little vague. Okay, so I didn't miss an age reference somewhere? Well, if you did, you weren't the only one. (laughs) But yes, 
you're not alone in that. It was a little vague. So let us set you straight right now. This book is about teenagers. By the end of the book, that was pretty clear that they were definitely mid to older. Yeah, I mean, they're dancing at West Point. Exactly. With cadets. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for them to like, get permission from their parents. Yeah. And I was like, oh no, these aren't just schoolgirl crushes. They're like old enough to be thinking about this. Yes. What did you think about the characters? I guess for me, I found their characters kind of like caricatures. Yes. And I feel like that was actually like emphasized by their various nicknames. Yeah, I would agree with I that. I mean, you had the joy girl. Yeah. Always happy and cheerful. Mm -hmm. And then the weeping princess, who is always sad unless the girls were actively trying to cheer her up. Yeah. Even America's daughter herself, Rona, she was always doing the right thing. And then every now and then they would just randomly fall out of their prescribed characters as though the author was trying to provide depth. But it was so random and offbeat and for just like a minute yeah. that it seemed misplaced. I would agree with that. I personally didn't relate to any of these characters, but after a while... I felt like I could see what Halsey was maybe trying to do in like presenting an assortment of characters from a variety yeah. of backgrounds. But I would agree. I don't think they're very well fleshed out. Right. It almost felt like she had a list in front of her saying, I need a character like this and a character like yeah. this and a character like this. Yeah, I agree. I think it felt exactly that same way. Mm -hmm. The one character I did actually really like was Isidore. AKA the Weeping Princess. Yes. In the story, she is a Belgian refugee and she wants to join this club. But of course, when they start talking about, well, it's an American club for Americans, she thinks she's excluded. Mm -hmm. And part of her role in the story is to help these girls realize that America is not just for Americans, right? Yeah. But her specific story, when they tell the backstory of how she was separated from her mother, it was just so unexpected and a little graphic. I'll give you that caveat right now, mm -hmm. but it was just so tragic. My heart really did go out to her. She was definitely the character I was most rooting for throughout the story. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Like, once you understood her background, I had a lot more sympathy for her. Yeah. And I really did appreciate that extra layer that it brought to the story because that was actually one element of the story that I was invested in seeing how it turned out. Exactly. You want to see the resolution of that story right. thread for sure. And there's actually a really interesting historical connection to that character that we'll have to talk about when we talk about the author herself. But yeah. what about you? Did you have any other characters that you liked or that you enjoyed? I was fairly neutral about most of the characters because I didn't find them at all relatable. Yeah. But the one character that I actually did like was Mr. Hillis. Okay. Yeah. And I could see that. I know he was barely in the story, but for me, he came across as actually pretty realistic. Uh huh. And I kind of loved his gruff exterior, but he still ends up having sympathy for Rona and her friends and doing the quote unquote right thing. Yes. I also appreciated that the author threw in that he wasn't that invested in the little girl left at his doorstep. Mm -hmm. He left it to the housekeeper to raise her because that kind of makes sense for an older man who yeah. isn't married with kids. Crusty old bachelor kind of right, guy, right? Exactly. He did it out of duty as opposed to actual emotional investment or care for this child. Exactly. And I think that's pretty realistic. I agree. I liked his character. And I think it was really neat to see how his attitude changed. Yes. Even though Rona's been with him for 16, 17 years. Yeah. Their relationship still grew and evolved. I really appreciated that. I agree. That was a great character. So let's give everybody a sample of what this book is like. 
We are thrilled today to welcome Laura English to our Gibson Yay. Girl Review family as one of our new readers. Today she's going to read a little action scene <laughs> that I think really exemplifies what this story is like as a novel for young adult girls. Yeah, yeah. This scene takes place in Plymouth, where Rona and her school friends have just seen the one and only Plymouth Rock. <laughs> At the time, her classmate Peggy teases that she's going to steal a piece of the rock as a souvenir. Oh my gosh. Of course, Rona thinks she's out of her mind and doesn't think anything of it until later that night when she awakes to find Peggy is missing from their hotel room. It must have been somewhere about 12 that Rona awakened with a sudden strange feeling that roused her to a sitting position when she discovered that her bedfellow was missing. Thinking she had wandered into one of the girls' rooms on some errand or another, for one never knew what Peggy would be up to, Rona jumped out of bed. It was nearly 12 o'clock. Where can Peggy be? She soliloquized anxiously as she hurriedly slipped into her kimono. She hastened into the hall. But a thorough search through the windings of the old-fashioned corridor and the discovery that her friends were all wrapped in slumber, to just from the quietness that prevailed, caused her to hurry back to her room, resolved to dress and go in search of the girl. Hearing the joy girl as she stirred restlessly in her sleep, Rona shook her gently, and as she sat up in bed with eyes staring sleepily into the darkness, she told her of Peggy's disappearance. As the girl finished, there was a moment's stillness, and then a sudden exclamation. Why, Joy Girl, what is the matter? demanded perplexed Rona, laying her hand gently on the girl's head. Do you know where she is? No, er, uh, why, oh, Miss Rona, Miss Peggy told me, uh, that she was going to steal out tonight. The sentence had ended in a sudden blank pause. Anne, do hurry and tell me almost screamed the now thoroughly exasperated Rona. If you know where she is, tell me. I don't know where she is. That is... Oh, she made me promise not to tell. And the joy girl tumbled back on her pillow, crying nervously. But there was no need to say more, for Rona had surmised the rest, and with swift feet was flying down the stairway to the hall below. It was but a moment's work to open the big entrance door leading into the office, and then she was swiftly making her way down North Street, and then on, in a mad rush, to Plymouth Rock, from where she now perceived the glimmer of something white. In a brief space of time, she had gained the shrine to see Peggy stretched on the rock, motionless and still, with a face as white as the gown she wore. Rona, with a few frantic calls of Peggy, Peggy, darted swiftly around to the other side of the rock, for she had suddenly remembered seeing the iron gate standing open when they had visited it earlier in the day. But alas, the iron gate was closed and locked, and no amount of pulling or pushing could budge it. Oh, how did she get in there? burst from the mystified girl as she perceived this bar to relieving her friend. Then, in a whirl, it came to her that Peggy had found the gate closed and, with her usual determination to have her own way, had climbed over it and injured herself on those terrible black spikes that, to the girl's excited imagination, looked like sharp-pointed knives. "'Oh, dear!' she moaned. "'What shall I do?' 
She stole back to her first position and peered through the iron railing at the figure lying so strangely still. Oh, Rona's heart gave a great leap, for on the white gown, not far from the motionless hand, she perceived a few small black spots. Was it blood? Oh, could it be that Peggy was dead? This whole scene totally reminded me of an incident from my own high school days. Oh, no. Which was pretty much <laughs> the only time I ever tried to get away with something oh, like no. this. Not that I was going to ever steal from Plymouth Rock. I've never seen Plymouth Rock. I wasn't going to do that. But my friends and I went out late one night. We snuck out and did something stupid and ended up stranded on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere and <laughs> had to find a payphone to call oh my, my parents gosh. to confess what we had done so they would come out. And yeah, it was not good. And it was probably why that was the only time I've ever done anything like that because I learned <laughs> that lesson, right? So on the one hand, this whole scene did strike a realistic chord with me. And I actually <laughs> found it pretty funny. Like, she seriously just broke in to try to steal oh my part gosh. of Plymouth Rock. Well, okay. I had probably the complete opposite reaction. <laughs> I was a very, very boring teenager. I was for the most part, too. I just had that one little Jeep incident. and <laughs> I'd say the most common trouble I got into was trying to read one more chapter before I did my chores. <laughs> and then I'd get grounded from my book. And... Or before lights out, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yeah, that was my exciting teenage years. So the entire time I read this scene, I was like, Go get an adult. What are you doing? Right? Raise the alarm. What the heck? It's just like grated on me. I was like, why are you doing this? Yeah. But hey, at least it elicited a reaction. Yeah. If she's supposed to be all responsible, like, is this really the example of being the best American, right. you know, stealing Plymouth Rock? I know. It like goes against everything that they were trying to display their principles to be. Exactly. Like, this is not <laughs> what the club is about, girl. <laughs> Yeah, the whole time oh I was gosh. reading this, I just kept remembering this incident the summer after my high school graduation. So yeah, I can oh totally gosh. understand why they didn't call an adult, because <laughs> that was horrific. Worst phone call I've ever made. That so, is true. That's true. This scene is a great example. There are many kind of escapades like this. Which kind of makes you wonder what kind of escapades the author might have gotten into. So do you want to share a little about the author? Yes. I think we really need to talk about Rena Halsey, because... Understanding her really put this book into a lot of context. And okay. honestly, I wish I had known all of this about her before I read the book because I probably would have appreciated it a lot more than I did. Okay. So Rena Halsey was born in 1860 and she was the only daughter of Harlan P. Halsey and Henrietta Halsey. Way to go with the alliteration there. Right? <laughs> but yeah, so Rena was the oldest. She had two younger brothers and the whole family grew up in Brooklyn for the most part. Her father was actually a very famous dime novel writer. Oh, that's interesting. And there was a whole process for the whole family to be involved in producing these books, from editing the drafts to assembling the pages, because he would like write a page, put a number at the bottom and toss it on the floor and keep writing. Oh my gosh. So somebody else had to physically collect the pages and put them together. Somebody else would edit it. Somebody else would take it down to the publisher. So it was kind of a whole family business. I need a family like this. Right? And they were actually producing like two books a week. Oh my gosh. At one point. That's so insane. very prolific. 
So you can definitely see where Rena developed some writing chops of her own by helping her father in her younger days, but it would actually be years before she began to write herself because she was responsible for caring for both of her parents during long illnesses that ultimately led to their deaths. Her father died in 1899 and her mother in 1908, mm. and she was even made responsible for the care of her youngest brother, who was ultimately committed to an asylum. Oh I could gosh. never figure out what for, but... Being institutionalized is never a good thing. Right. And he eventually passed away in 1914. After that, there was actually a huge legal battle that she was involved in with her other surviving brother over the parents' estate and her mother's will. Oh my gosh. So there was a kind of a lot of sad family drama. No kidding. So it wasn't until all of this was behind her that she published her first book in 1917. Wow. And she only ever published three novels. America's Daughter was the second of these three. Wow. She never married and was all but forgotten as a writer by the time she passed away in 19. 1932, mm. at least in this country. However, both the book we're reading today, America's Daughter, and her last book, The Liberty Girl, she received a letter from the Queen of Belgium personally requesting copies of these books as gifts for her daughter, Princess Marie. Oh my gosh, that is so interesting. Isn't that cool? And of course, when you see the whole story about the Belgian refugee in the story, you can immediately see why yeah, absolutely. the Queen of Belgium would be interested in this book. That is really cool. Also, copies of these two books were requested to be included in the National War Memorial Museum that was established in Paris after the war. So yeah, even though by the time her obituary came out in 1932, she had been pretty forgotten in this country. There was a comment in one of them that her book was on display in this war memorial in Paris, but her local public library right there in Brooklyn didn't have a single copy of any of her books. Wow. Oh my gosh. You know, so it's kind of sad. Yeah. But... I think the most interesting thing, and definitely the most relevant to America's daughter, is that she and her mother were the founders of a whole society called the Colonial Daughters of the 17th Century. <laughs> they formed this society in 1896 for people who had ancestors dating back to the Pilgrim and Puritan settlers of the original colonies. Well, that explains a lot. It totally does. <laughs> And actually, some of the historical figures that the schoolgirls in the story mention on their travels, like Reverend Higginson, the first minister of the Salem colony, yeah. was uh -huh. actually one of Rena Halsey's ancestors. Oh, so she put her own family okay. ancestors in the story. So it's actually kind of a really personal connection to this book. Yeah, that kind of makes me feel really bad for finding the book so boring. <laughs> Yeah, so that makes a whole lot more sense why this is so focused on 17th century history. Yeah. So that's definitely something readers who want to tackle America's Daughter need to know up front. Yes, which you'd never expect in a book called America's Daughter. But, you know, when it comes down to it, it does actually make sense. It does. Let's go all the way back. Yeah. Right? Why not? Go straight back to the foundations. After I read all this, I'm like, okay, her mother's already passed away. Her father's passed away. One of her brothers has passed away. She's living alone. It made the book kind of feel a little more nostalgic to me, for sure. Yeah. Like kind of as a tribute to her family history. That would make a lot more sense. Yes. I was going to mention, too, this society, the Colonial Daughters of the 17th Century that Rena and her mother founded, still exists today. What? Seriously? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. So I guess that's one way that the Halsey family lives on. That is pretty cool. You know, and the fact that this society still exists to this day. Wow. 
But with all the history that she includes in this story, that is really the biggest challenge of reading this book. Yeah. Because even when you learn that this is the author's personal history and her personal connection to these pilgrim ancestors, and you can understand why they're in the story, Mm -hmm. it still really makes the story drag. Oh my gosh, so much. You're just like, can we please go to the next part and see who Rona's family is? I confess, I started skimming at some points. Because on the one hand, I was really interested that it was there, but it just kept going on and on and on and lots of names so much and another challenge for me was rona and her classmates have some little ritual ceremonies that they do at various stops along oh the way gosh. where they're like in robes and carrying candles and oh my god it, it's a little weird i think i already banished those from my mind because they were so <laughs> weird I was like, it what was is so happening bizarre. right now? Yeah. One moment they're referencing God as the be all end all and the next minute they're doing some sort of witch ceremony. Yeah. It was weird. That was really odd. It was very strange. But you should still read it. <laughs> what about you? What other kind of challenges did you have? <laughs> you know, I think you basically listed them. The uh, unfortunate ritual ceremonies that I don't like thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> and then the long history lessons. Oh my gosh. If I was going to get through the story, I couldn't sit and read every word of it. The only reason to do that is if I was actually studying Puritan history, then yeah. I would have a good reason to go back and look over it all. That's one of the reasons why we're still recommending this book on today's episode. Yeah. Is because it does have something to offer in terms of this very unique exploration of Pilgrim and Puritan history. And I could totally see where any of our listeners out there who homeschool children and are looking for books on these kind of subjects, Mm -hmm. this is a great one to talk about because these history lessons really are relevant. Yeah, that's true. But for me, the biggest reason why we are recommending America's Daughter is because this book really does make you think. Yes, that is true. What does it mean to be American? What does this country stand for? What does the flag represent? Does liberty mean a license to do whatever you want, regardless of how it might impact others? Mm -hmm. These are huge themes and questions that the characters in the book wrestle with. And they're certainly very hot topics for us in 2023. Yeah. And I think even though this is a young adult novel... I feel like America's Daughter will actually appeal to older readers like us (laughs) because we remember wars and terrorist attacks Mm -hmm. that give us a frame of reference on these questions of national unity that I think readers who were born in the 21st century simply don't have. Mm -hmm. As I was reading this book, I was thinking a lot of the experience we had after Mm 9-11 and how differences suddenly became so trivial as the country united under this great tragedy. Yeah, that's true. And Thinking of the war experience in 1918, I was making those kind of connections in terms of what does it mean to be an American? What does the flag stand for? Those are exactly kind of things that we were talking about after 9-11. Right. So that was my personal experience with these questions anyway. I mean, I agree. I really appreciated the questions that were asked throughout the book and how relevant they still are today. Uh As we already discussed in the beginning, they are debating who to allow into their Daughters of America club. Yeah. And it was really fascinating to see the various perspectives. So I feel like that happened a lot in the book. The author did a really good job of just pulling in conversation topics that are difficult to answer in a definitive way. And To be honest, I think that if I had gone into the book knowing that a large portion of it was relating history to the readers, I probably would have enjoyed it more just because I wouldn't have kept waiting for the quote unquote real story to start. Yeah. And even with the little bit that I knew about it before I went into reading it, Mm -hmm. 
I had the same kind of reaction. Like, I wasn't expecting quite that much history. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the author's writing technique mm -hmm. or lack thereof and just not being able to integrate <laughs> it very well. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of that could be pulled out as excerpts that would be really interesting as history lessons for young people to read today. Yeah, I totally agree. There are also a lot of really fun, interesting historical tidbits <laughs> yes. that stood out to me in this story. One of them was some slang, actually. <laughs> there was a point in the story where one of the characters says, okay. I know. And it's actually written O period K period. I reread that a couple times. So I was like, wait, one, they were using this terminology. Right. And two, that's a fascinating way to spell it. We use that now, of course. That's classic text message shorthand. True. But to think that that can date back to at least 1918, that's a kind of modern myth-busting discovery in this book. I couldn't even believe it. Another fun reference that jumped out to me was the Glad game. Oh my gosh, I noticed that too. I actually took a break immediately to go look it up and make sure that she was actually referring to Pollyanna. Yes. And she was, because that's where it came from. I did the exact same thing. Yeah. I had to put the book down <laughs> and immediately start researching. Yes. Because I know Pollyanna came out before this book. Well, I know that now. <laughs> <laughs> but my question was, did that originate with Pollyanna? That was my first question, too. Was the Glad game something that existed before Pollyanna and she just, like, made the most of it? But no, the Glad game appears to have originated purely with Pollyanna. Yep. So it's really interesting to see how just five years after Pollyanna came out, the Glad game is already ensconced in pop culture. That was pretty cool. I was also really amused by the list of names for old maids. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I laughed so hard. <laughs> I have never heard of some of these terms, and I'm actually really glad I haven't. As an old maid, oh, come myself. On. It would be kind of fun. I know. I would not want to be called a thornback, <laughs> a leftover, or a back number. No, thank you. You have to wonder where thornback came from. I know, right? Oh my gosh. There's also a reference to the Castle Trot, which is a very popular dance by Vernon and Irene Castle. So there were just some fun little pop culture things that did attract my eye as a historian and made the book feel really grounded in its 1918 publication year. Yeah, I really appreciated those. So there are some things like that that do redeem the book for me as a historian. So I think the last thing that we talk about, we are the Gibson Girl Review. Oh, yes. So did you see a Gibson Girl connection? Kind of. Okay. Maybe. This is a young adult novel, yeah. and this is also near the end of our show's 1870 to 1920 time frame. So there aren't any necessarily direct Gibson girl connections for me in this story. The young woman in this book would be the daughters of the Gibson girl generation. That's true. Right? Yeah. But I can't help noticing the way these girls are so independent. Mm -hmm. You know, they have no problem traveling on their own, hopping into a canoe with the young men. Half the time, they're not even with their chaperone on this right. trip. You know, They're kind of off doing their own thing. They are very young, independent women. Which is completely different from previous years. Yes, exactly. You could not have seen this kind of independent, free spirit that all of the girls in this book display if the Gibson girl generation had not come before them. Right. So it was like an indirect example of the impact and the influence yeah. of the Gibson girl. I can absolutely see that. And speaking of the chaperone, the teacher, Miss Marston, she is very much a Gibson girl type. She can still have a career and a romance at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I could see a lot of that being related to the Gibson girl as well, albeit indirectly. This is not a full-on Gibson girl story like we've seen in some of our past books, but 
I think it's definitely an example of the ramifications of the Gibson Girl generation and the influence and the imprint it left. Yes, because even things like focusing on the women in history who impacted the nation's principles. Yes. That just showed a whole new level of independence that I feel like we just haven't seen in previous books. Yeah, and especially, too, with their interactions with the young men. Mm -hmm. They're a little coquettish sometimes, but they're also just, hey, we're boys and girls, we can hang out. Right. There's a very different vibe in how they react and interact with the men in the story. Yeah. That feels like a direct result of the Gibson girl influence. And like even with the male characters in the book, I really didn't feel like that took away a lot of the female folks in the story. No, I agree. They were the secondary characters. Yes. They were the supporting players, which again is very Gibson girl-like. Mm -hmm. The Gibson man was never the star of the show. Yeah. So I can definitely see the reflection of the Gibson girl in the story for sure. Yeah. So overall, I did enjoy the book in the end. Mm -hmm. I didn't hate it. This is not a Miss Bale's romance. <laughs> no. There is enough of a story here to justify recommending this book. But my biggest recommendation is definitely because of the themes of this book. Yeah. And the way that America's Daughter asks these really tough questions about the true meaning of patriotism and national unity. Mm -hmm. While we are not going to tell you what conclusions the story had in answer to these questions, because again, those would be spoilers. Spoilers, and we don't want to ruin the book for any of you who are going to read it. I think we can all agree that it's really important to keep asking these questions. And I also think we have to never take for granted that we live in a country where we can ask such questions in the first place. Yes, absolutely. And that's why I still wanted to talk about this book today, 4th <laughs> of July, because in the end, it is kind of a salute to forefathers and foremothers. Mm hmm. And it does kind of make you want to commit to being a better American and living out the principles that founded this great nation of ours. So ultimately, for me, I would have to say there really is no better book to share on Independence Day because we all have the right to not like this book. <laughs> we have the freedom to dislike this book if we want, right? Yeah, it truly is a perfect Independence Day novel. And even though I didn't necessarily enjoy the book, I do still highly recommend it as a good yeah. source for what life was like in the midst of uncertain times and yes. how many of those same questions and fears we all still struggle with. And I actually also think it'd be a great history book for people studying colonial America. Yes. I mean, absolutely. there were a lot of facts that I didn't know yep. since colonial America tends to be kind of superseded by the revolution and the civil war. And then finally, it was a really powerful reminder of patriotism at its finest. Yeah. And that's just something agree. that is so, so easy to lose sight of in today's <laughs> volatile environment. Right? Oh my gosh. Ugh. But, you know, there's always just that little part of you that wants to stand a little straighter and a little prouder as you remember that all of our forefathers suffered to ensure that we had the freedom that they were denied. Yes. And I think it's also important to point out people are still fighting and suffering and dying for that freedom today. Yeah. And whatever side of the political spectrum you fall on, I think we can all give thanks for that and be proud of that. I know I am. Absolutely. Well, there you have it. <laughs> Episode one. Diving straight back to our foundations. It's perfect. I really. know. Exactly. Yeah. The foundations of our show and the foundations of our country all in one book. <laughs> we couldn't have planned that better if we tried. All right. You know, it's like we're geniuses or something. <laughs> With that, it is time to close the cover on America's Daughter by Rena Halsey. 
Join us next time when we revisit the past and examine the present through the pages of another antique novel. And until then, keep reading like a Gibson girl. Thank you for listening to the Gibson Girl Review, a Curious Antiquarian production. For complete show notes, transcripts, download links, and more, please visit us at gibsongirlreview.com.